Thank you so much, Bennett. Uh, I don't know if you were here on Sunday morning, the 14th of August last year, but if you were, you might remember this quote from the end of uh, Shakespeare's 94th sonnet, Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. And I just want you to kind of hold that thought and hold that image and hold that smell, if you can. Uh, During this current teaching series, Major and the Minors, we've spent four weeks just looking at and reflecting on Hosea. Well, starting today, we're going to spend another four weeks reading and reflecting on a second so-called minor prophet, a shepherd from Tekoa called Amos, who lived and spoke around the same time as Hosea. So we're now back 8th century BC, but as always... Whenever it comes to God's word, don't let the time gap that exists between then and now tempt us to distance ourselves from the importance of the relevance of what someone like Amos has got to say. In terms of a target audience, both Hosea and Amos directed what they said towards Israel. They addressed their message primarily to the people of God. Now, although Hosea had some incredibly challenging things to say, and we looked at some of those, we also celebrated the thought and the fact that running right through his entire prophecy is this emphasis on the outrageous love of God. But when you come to Amos, it's different. It seems that he drew the short straw. Because apart from a few verses at the very end, the vast majority of what he had to say was sobering. And it was shocking. And it was really uncomfortable. And it forced the people who heard him speak face up to and reflect on judgment. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God. And that is rarely something that people in general, people in general don't want to think too long and hard about God's judgment. But whenever the message is almost exclusively for the people of God, That means that we, us, the Israel of God as we're described in Galatians 6. Whenever the message is directed at the people of God, it's so important that we sit up and take notice and consider the implications of this message for us today. Because don't forget, and this was something we thought about last year, The Old Testament prophets spoke from the perspective of eternity. In other words, there's no sell-by. There's no best-before-date stamped on their message. They just keep giving. And so what Amos had to say to the people of God years ago is still relevant to us, South Belfast, 2012. But what about 
those festering lilies. Well, that more or less describes the people of God in Amos' day. And I'll explain more in a moment. So, if you have a Bible, I can invite you to turn to this fascinating Old Testament prophecy. It's page 917 in the Bibles in the pews. And uh, we'll start at the beginning. Verse 1 reads like this. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel. And as Amos begins to speak, his listeners, the Israelites, the people of God, are immediately confronted with a striking image that must have grabbed their attention. Verse 2. Here's his opening thought. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Now, if you have a Bible, flick over to chapter 3 and look at verse 8. So in chapter 1, verse 2, we have heard that the Lord roars. Chapter 3, verse 8, it actually says, the lion has roared. So right from the outset, we have this picture of the Lord, and Bennett's already drawn our attention to it, this picture of the Lord as a roaring lion. Now, for those who have been following this, this new series, that's not an entirely new thought to us. We came across something like it last week in Hosea 13, where God says, well, I will come upon them like a lion. Like a lion, says God, I will devour them. A wild animal will bear upon them or will tear them apart. You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me. But as Amos begins to share his particular vision, the Israelites must have sensed trouble. Because any thoughts of a domesticated or tame or quiet or safe God are challenged to the core. They're shattered. They're actually blown right out of the water because God roars. God thunders. And those are incredibly unsettling uh, ideas, unnerving ideas. They, They create a mental picture of God that doesn't tend to sit too well with people's preferred image of God. And whenever a lion roars... Bence again touched on this. I want to bring another dimension to it. But whenever a lion roars, it is often an ominous saying. It generally implies that living prey is within its sights. And the reason I say that is based on Amos chapter 3, this time verse 4, where Amos asks a question. Have a look at the question Amos asks. Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? And the answer is obvious, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Because a roaring lion only means one thing, according to Amos. It means that it's locked into its target and it's going in for the kill. And so as Amos opens his mouth, And as he begins telling the people, his listeners, the people of God primarily, that the lion roars, it's an image that would have sent a chill down the spine of everyone within earshot. Or at least it should have done. And in some ways, 
it still should. And what follows, as you can see from verse 3 of chapter 1, is this declaration of judgment. And again, God as judge, I've said this, it isn't a popular concept today. It, It never has been popular. And the idea of the Lord as my shepherd, well, that's comforting, but the idea of the Lord as anybody's ferocious lion, well, that that just doesn't sit well. I like the former. I deeply dislike the latter. And so it's it's an unthinkable, it's an unpalatable reality. And yet, according to God's word, that is who God is. And the moment that we reduce that, dilute that, or attempt to deny that dimension of God's character, what we're actually guilty of doing is creating a false God, and we all know where that leads. So how do you see God this morning? How do you see God? You see, for us, and and again, touched on this a little last week, for us, mercy and wrath appear irreconcilable opposites surely one cancels the other out and therefore the perfect blending of both in one divine nature is something that as human beings we struggle to get our heads around and come to terms with it's it's really hard to hold this idea of a god of mercy and yet a god of wrath intention And I'll say more about that in a moment. So God roars. God who, as Genesis tells us, is the judge of all the earth. And via the prophet Amos, he's about to pronounce his judgment on numerous people groups. But notice that from verse 3, it starts with Israel's neighbours. And so although this arresting picture of a roaring, thundering God had grabbed the attention of the Israelites, there must have been a sense of relief on their part as actually God begins speaking to Damascus and Gaza in verse 6 or Tyre in verse 9 or Edom in verse 11 or Ammon in verse 13 or Moab in the first verse of chapter 2. Those you see are the weeds, if you like. They're the weeds. They're not like us. They're different. They're the enemies. And as Israel hears, and we're not going to read the first part, but if you look at each of those little references that there are to all those people groups, as Israel hears of God sending fire on all these people, you see, Israel could have sort of said a smug amen under their breath. They they deserve it. But before we read on and discover the unthinkable about what Amos says, I do want to make a comment about these surrounding nations, and I hope this isn't too much of a tangent and this isn't unhelpful. See, according to Moses, or Amos, sorry, they were clearly under judgment. But you could say, well, hang on a wee minute. Those people never received any special revelation of God. They weren't given God's law the way the Israelites were. 
There were no prophets sent to those people to call them back into relationship with the Almighty. There was no Moses figure in their story. The voice of God never sounded in the ears of their founding fathers. So surely if they've never heard, then why are they now hearing the lion roar? Why are these people groups facing divine judgment? It seems so unfair. It's a good point. It's not a new question. What about all those people who have never heard the gospel? You see, here's the issue. They might have been without special revelation, but they weren't without moral responsibility. They might have been without direct knowledge of God, but they weren't without accountability to God. They might have been without the law written on tablets of stone, but they weren't without the law written on their consciences. And in Amos, the law written on their consciences is actually spelt out in terms of human relationships. And for me, this is really, really important. It's one take on it, I know. You see, as you read the rest of chapter 1, as God speaks to all these people groups, and the first little bit of chapter 2, you discover that all these people had little or virtually no respect for human life. And so they treated people as things. They killed them. They sold them. They betrayed them. They expressed anger towards them. Hatred was shown to fellow human beings. They deliberately expressed cruelty towards one another, even towards unborn children. It's all there. And the point is this. That how we treat people, how everyone treats one another, it's really important. It has eternal implications. Earthly relationships have a heavenly dimension. Actions directed towards those created in the image of God provoke a reaction from God. You trample over others. You mistreat, you abuse others, and you will have God to answer to. And as we look around our world today, and I don't know how you process man's inhumanity to man, as you read about it, as you watch it on your TV screens, and we have some incredibly powerful current examples of this. The voices of reason, the voices of conscience are being ignored. They're being silenced. And therefore, the lion roars. And surely the judge of earth one day will do right, and justice will be done, and consequences will be faced. And so I have got to just trust God in this regarding those who have never heard. For these surrounding nations... Because of the way they treated one another, judgment was imminent. But you see, in verse 4 of chapter 2, it all starts to get a little too close for comfort. Have a look at it. For three sins of Judah. So for Israel, it started away out here with their neighbors, 
Now it's right next door. And then the inconceivable happens. Amos doesn't stop talking. The words keep coming. The lion advances. And so chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord says for three sins of no, no, Israel. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. You see, it turns out that the people of God have lost their way. It turns out that the people of God have failed to live in the light. They have kept making crazy spiritual life-threatening choices. They have become festering lilies. And so rather than me now get in the way, we are going to actually read something from God's word. So let's stand together. Change of position. We're going to read what is said to the people of God from verse 6 of chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the innocent for silver. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. The people of God trample on the heads of the poor. As on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl. And so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken and pledged. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness. To give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is it not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Grab a seat. Those are chilling words. And what what God declares in in verse 13 there must have sent shockwaves through an entire community. I will crush you. And there's actually, as you read the rest of this prophecy, there's no let up in the stark language. In fact, at times, the language of God takes your breath away. And that's something we're going to discover in subsequent weeks. But before we begin to explore exactly why or what made the people of God waken the lion, let me deal with that phrase that keeps repeating over and over again in those first two chapters. I'm sure you've picked up on it. It's this phrase here. This is what the Lord says. And and God says this to every single people group he speaks to. For three sins of whoever, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. 
And it's a phrase that actually refers to the people's repeated, relentless, sinful choices, attitudes, and behavior. It means there was no willingness to repent or amend their ways. These people, and we're talking about all those referred to here, they consistently and constantly did their own thing. They just kept on keeping on violating the laws of God. Total disregard for the laws of God. For three sins, even for four, it just means they kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. There was no let up. Now God can't turn a blind eye to sin. We've already made that clear as part of this series. But in his mercy, and because, again, something we discovered last year, because we know God is slow to anger, God waits. God doesn't just wait But he generously gives lots of opportunity for repentance. If you want to put it like this, days and days and days of grace. But whenever there's no desire to repent, no desire. Whenever self reigns supreme. Whenever we willingly refuse to acknowledge God and his ways, there comes a point Whenever we have made our long-term choice. Whenever there is now no option but to face the wrath and judgment of God. As one writer puts it, one way of expressing this truth about God is to say that he never punishes the sinner except after prolonged personal observation and ample opportunity for repentance. In other words, his mercy waits. His patience waits and watches. The face that God turns to the world is predominantly one of mercy. And wrath, when it comes at all, is late and overdue. And here in Amos' day, time's up. Time's up. They've made their bed and so they're going to have to lie in it. It was too late. And for us in our world, in our day, God's mercy still waits. His patience still watches. There's ample opportunity for repentance. We still exist, if you want to put it this way, in the days of grace. But there will come a point in time. There is a day of judgment pending. And therefore the choice is that every single person in this church, in this community, in this society, in this nation, in our world, the choices that we make now And our response to his mercy and offer of forgiveness is critical. But let's get back and focus in on the people of God. You see, those surrounding nations, six of them, Judah, you could say seven, they all get a few verses. Israel gets seven chapters. Seven chapters explaining why the roaring lion is coming their way. And as you read this prophecy, you do quickly realize the contemporary relevance of it for us. And just before I want to finish by looking at kind of one specific issue in the first two chapters, I want to highlight three general things that Amos insists upon that need to be taken seriously by us, by the church by the people of God. And the first is this, that privilege brings responsibility. Take a look at at verse 2 of chapter 3, actually. 
where God says, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. So there's privilege. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. You see, it seems to be, according to the shepherd from Tokia, that the nearer to God, the closer the scrutiny and the more certain the judgment. Can I say that again? And, and I don't say this lightly. The nearer to God, the closer the scrutiny, the more certain the judgment. Or as the Apostle Peter puts it in the New Testament, for the time of judgment has come and it begins with the household of God. See, we as Christians are not exempt from God's judgment. And as people who have experienced God's mercy and God's grace, then how we live in response to that is vitally important. Serious issue. Second thing is this. Runs right through this prophecy. Past history can't take the place of current spiritual and moral commitment. See, these people had a rich history. And as much as it's really good to recall yesterday, the important thing is, where are you at today? It's not just how you start that matters, it's how you finish that really counts. Discipleship is an ongoing process. Your growth now is vital. These people had long since stopped growing. They could refer to when they got called out of Egypt and led through the wilderness. But they were a lion in that. And they just drifted away from God. Past history cannot replace current commitment. And then the third thing is this, that lifestyle, and this is, I know this is not a great phrase, lifestyle must reflect liturgy. Religious practices and routines, and this is something that runs right through this, as I say, religious practices and routines are invalid. In fact, let me go further, they are repulsive and dangerous if they're not backed up by a consistent lifestyle. You see, in Amos' day, churches were packed. In Amos' day, sacrifices were being offered. In Amos' day, songs were being sung. But you see, the rest of the week, they just lived as they liked. And as a church, the church, broadly speaking, those are three powerful reminders and challenges to us. And I just want to give you three questions that you could take away from this morning before we look at that one issue how does my or how does the impending judgment of God affect my daily life what impact does that reality have on the choices I make every day how would I describe my current spiritual and moral commitment and is there any disconnect between life and lip or lip and life that needs to be confessed but just as a finish, there's one reason raised in these chapters. I mean, we're going to look at other reasons in the next few weeks. But there's, there's one reason raised in these chapters as to why the lion was roaring. And it's there in verse 7 of chapter 2. You sell the needy for a pair of sandals. You trample on the heads of the poor. 
you oppress the poor, you crush the needy, you trample the needy, you go away, and you do away with the poor in the land. You see, their lack of compassion and social justice, their lack of compassion and social justice specifically concerning the poor, the marginalized, the downcast, it was just appalling. And what is particularly shocking here is that these Israelites were rich. If you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 15, it turns out that they had winter and summer houses. And Amos says, you live in houses adorned with ivory. You lie in beds inlaid with ivory. You occupy mansions. You have lush vineyards. You dine on choice lands. You drink wine by the bowlful. Now this is not, and this never should be, a cheap dig at people who are well off. Please, please, please hear me in this. The problem is not that they were rich. Money and having money is not the issue. The problem here is they were selfish. They just ignored the poor. They were indifferent towards the poor. And anyone who knows anything about God's word and God's heart towards those who claim to belong to God know that we cannot, we must not live like that. And based on the Torah, the Israelites would have known we are hugely responsible for the poor in our midst. God spoke into our lives time and time again about what we should do with those who are less well off than we are. And God has blessed many of us materially and financially and that is an amazing thing. But the challenge in belonging to the God of the poor, as we've just sang, the challenge in belonging to the God of the poor is to have a heart for the poor. The challenge in belonging to the God of the poor is to take seriously the something like 2,000 verses in Scripture that speak about caring for the poor. And I know, and I said this last year, I know there are endless sermons that could be preached in that whole subject. But for now, the one issue, and the issue facing the people here, and the issue I believe that faces all of us and faces me is this. How am I responding to the poor in my midst? The Israelites were walking all over them. I mean, that's literally the language here, isn't it? They're, they were trampling them. And so God is offended by their pious worship. And as we reflect on that and make connections, and it just seems so right, Bennett, that you chose for this morning. God of the poor, friend of the weak, give us compassion, we pray. Melt our cold hearts, let tears fall like rain. Come change our love from a spark to a flame. Please, God, do that in me. And Amos, as we're going to find, is a, is a profoundly challenging and relevant book. And, and at some level, and I, I know I say, at some level, I kind of do apologize for a, a really heavy message this morning. But as we work our way through some of these minor prophets, it's difficult to bring anything other than a, a challenge and a difficult message. But one of the things that it does is, I believe, it reminds us very powerfully that sin still needs to be taken seriously by the people of God. And therefore, for me, the connection between what we're doing here at the moment on Sunday mornings and what we're going to be doing tonight and what we're doing throughout these Sunday nights here at Windsor really is important, where we do a series looking at the deadly seven sins. Because we are looking at spiritual formation. We are looking at this need for those of us who are Christians to still take sin seriously. We have been forgiven. We are in relationship with the Almighty God. 
But the influence of sin has not been entirely extinguished from our lives. It still seduces us. Still tempts. Still can trip us up. Can't destroy the relationship we have with God. But it can certainly disrupt it. And please God. May we not be like lilies that fester. Let's pray together. Father, I come before you this morning uh, in as much honesty as I can muster and say if there's anything again that I have said this morning that has been unhelpful, that has not been from you, that has just been my thoughts, my opinions, my views on this text, then I pray, God, that those words will be forgotten uh, before we've had dessert. But God, if there's anything this morning that really has uh, reaffirmed what you have said to the people of God and continue to say, then God, I pray that those things will be remembered, that they would find a, a resting place, a lodging place within our hearts' minds, and that you, by your Spirit, would then continue to use your word to speak into our lives. You are a holy God. And so as we close this service, I pray that you would purify our hearts. And you would let them be like gold and precious silver. And that we would make choices to be holy. And I know God, speaking for myself, that I will walk away from here. And I will have choices to make regarding how I process what I've thought about myself. But I ask that you'd help me to choose to be holy. In Jesus' name. Amen.